in the prime of life, says me, far as I be known. Haven't time to stack around in comfort all the years. So when we get a little time before our boat gets going, we head on down to the library, and this is what we hear. Come, Come on, on in, and look, look all around, around. There's, there's plenty for to see. Make your own self right upon my love, the library. Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and today I'm talking again with Nicole Hollingstead. Nicole was born and raised in Petersburg, and she is a board member of the ANXA Regional Corporation, Sea Alaska. She's also the owner operator of ANA Solutions, a consulting firm. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, Kari. I'm so happy to be talking with you today. Thank you. And actually, Kari, if I if I may, I would be happy to introduce myself um, as I should culturally in the Tlingit language. My English name is Nicole Hollingstead. My parents were Luella Nicholson Hollingstead and Casper Hollingstead Jr. of Petersburg. Uh, my Tlingit name is Chakla Yuchat Duvasach Yech Ayachat Tachdengtan Nachat Seti. Sakwedi Yadi Ayachat, Norwegian Yadi Ayachat. And so what I've told you in my Clinket introduction is my Clinket name, which means Mother Eagle. 
that I am a member of the Raven moiety of the Clinkett Society. Clinkett Society is organized into two moieties. You're either eagle or you're raven. And that was meant for balance within the society. And I am of the Tuktane Ton or Sea Pigeon Clan. And I am also the child of Tsakwedi, which is the um, split killer whale, and Norwegian, if you happen to catch that in the midst of all that clinket. So thank you for letting me give a little history. Thank you, Nicole, for that wonderful introduction. I'm learning I'm picking up on more clinket language, especially when you give the translation, so I really appreciate it. On December 18, 1971, was the passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. And Petersburg was left out of that. Five communities in Southeast Alaska were left out of that. And that's, right. that's what we were going to talk about today. The group is called Alaska Landless Natives. Is that correct? Well, there are... There are different ways that these five communities are identified. Landless communities is probably the easiest. It's what most people have heard for these 50 years. So it's, it's great timing that we're talking on December 18th in 2021. Here we are 50 years after ANCSA was signed into law. And what ANCSA did was it settled land claims uh, of Alaska natives in the state of Alaska. Um, oil was discovered on the North Slope. The state wanted to settle those claims so they could build a pipeline. So in Alaska, our Alaska Native leaders and Congress opted not to go the route of reservations, not to create reservations in Alaska for all of the Alaska Native um, regions. There, there are reservation lands here, both in Metlakatla and one acre of land in Craig. But the communities in Alaska were recognized by setting up corporations to take title to land in Alaska. That's the short version of what ANCSA did. Settled native land claims, created corporations to take title to that land, provided some um, standing up money for those corporations, and that's how land is, is owned. It's owned by private corporations that have Alaska native shareholders in the state of Alaska. So there are five communities that were left out of ANCSA. And I mentioned this in another conversation with you, but there have been, there is all kinds of speculation about why these communities might have been left out. It could be because of existing timber contracts and contractors not wanting competition for the timber around these five communities. Um, the five communities are Petersburg, Wrangell, Haynes, Tenneke Springs, and Ketchikan. So these are fairly big communities. They would have been recognized as urban corporations under ANCSA and allowed to stand up an urban corporation, um, but they weren't. Um, so we do know these five communities in Southeast Alaska were left out. Um, very few communities were, but we've focused on trying to recover the land and the benefits and the rights that come with that land, these five communities have been without for the past 50 years. Okay. So had these five communities been included, as communities, their shareholders to Sea Alaska were designated as urban shareholders. When Sea Alaska enrolled its shareholders, 
there were three kinds of shareholders that could enroll. If you could prove a geographic tie to the community of, let's say, Petersburg, for example, you could enroll as uh, an urban shareholder. For ANCSA, you could also enroll as an at-large shareholder, and that means you lived outside of the state of Alaska at the time, or you could enroll as a village shareholder. So those are the three types of stock you could own under ANCSA, at-large, urban, or village. So the shareholders from Petersburg are urban shareholders, as if we had had an urban corporation. What would have happened had Petersburg been included is we would have received the same acreage of land as other ANCSA urban corporations. It's called a township. It's a little over 23,000 acres. And we would have been able to select that land from around the community and had the right to incorporate an urban corporation within the state of Alaska. Basically, we could have stood up a state-regulated private for-profit corporation in the community of Petersburg that would have held the title to those 23,000 acres of land around the community. Okay. What is the current status of the legislation regarding Alaska landless natives right now? These landless communities are working together in sort of an organization uh, that's known as Alaska Natives Without Land. That's the platform, that's the effort. And what these five communities have done, they've actually set up a nonprofit corporation, um, the Landless Natives of Petersburg would be one example. And then there are these five communities. So those five nonprofit corporations have representatives. Those representatives come together and other representatives from communities work together. And we're continuing to work through Congress to get legislation passed that would amend ANCSA to pull these five communities in. Legislation through Congress is always kind of an uphill climb. You have to have the bill introduced in the House, and then you have to have it introduced in the Senate. The bill then goes into its appropriate committees in each body, the House or the Senate. The bill has to come out of those committees, go through a whole markup process, essentially be merged into a single bill that both bodies agree to and then put to a vote of on the floor of Congress. Then, of course, that has to be signed by the president. So Congress operates within a session that runs two years. So every congressional session is two years. If our legislation does not get to the floor of Congress, we have to start over every two years. And our Alaska delegation is strongly supportive of getting land back to these five landless communities. Um, Senators Murkowski and Sullivan and Representative Young have introduced this legislation within this congressional session. So we're hoping it goes through the process and can get to a vote. We have to work hard, very hard, collaboratively and collectively to keep pushing for this legislative solution. Yes. And so how long has has this has this um, fight been going on for to get this? Um, how long have have you been at this? I mean, not you personally, but has it been 50 years that? Well, technically, it has been 50 years that these communities have been left out. Now, in the 70s and 80s, these 
communities were working to set up their own village and urban corporations to establish the regional corporations. And it's really important to understand that a corporation is a very Western model. It's a very Western paradigm that Alaska Natives were asked to adopt and stand up and make successful. So the first couple of decades after ANCSA, Alaska leaders at those at that time were just working hard to try to make those corporations a success. It wasn't until about the late 80s that we were able to turn that focus back to the landless communities and start to organize. So it's been, you know, three decades at a minimum that there has been organized effort to try to restore land back to these five communities. Okay, so it was a matter of getting the original up and running and on your feet, and then they could turn their attention toward it. We have people who are fighting now for the landless to receive lands that should have come to them under ANCSA, whose own ancestors were part of standing up the original corporations, the regionals, or working you know, for ANCSA itself. My own grandmother was involved. We have representatives from those five communities whose, whose relatives have passed away. Generations now of relatives who have passed while these landless communities are still without their land. And it's such an important injustice to overcome that we are now talking to our own children and our own grandchildren about how important it will be to continue this fight to be recognized under ANCSA, to stand up those urban corporations that should have existed for the last 50 years. So we know that when it comes to native land and the rights that are associated with those lands, that is something that we are in for for the long haul. We literally have trained successive generations of Alaska natives to work to resolve the landless issue. You had, we had touched on it before about what is um, what what Petersburg has lost out on by not having the land and the corporation for the past 50 years. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Because it's really important to consider. In the first place, the community of Petersburg has missed out on having a business entity within its community that would generate jobs, that would contribute to local taxes on the land base, um, you know, any sales taxes, taxes that are applicable, a business entity that could contribute to the community, could provide scholarships to community members, be a partner within the Chamber of Commerce, bring economic development to the region, to also very importantly, protect the asset of the original indigenous occupants of these lands. There are really important cultural sites, sacred sites, graveyard sites that need stewardship and protection. So there are so many benefits that have, could, have, could have been flowing to Petersburg over these 50 years that haven't. And it's time, it's time to put that to an end and get the landless recognized so that it can stand up those corporations and start contributing back to these communities. 
Can you address the narrative of the Alaska Natives did not live here permanently in Petersburg, and that's why they don't have land? I, that was not really part of the equation to my awareness, but... But it's um, such a narrative locally. You know, I think it's also important for any conversation about the landless in Petersburg to take into account the totality of what that means. This would be land placed into native ownership around the community of Petersburg. And it's always fair to include people who have concerns about what that would mean, what that means for access to those lands or people who have had traditional use on those lands. So let's talk about that. That is an important part of this conversation. The legislation itself underscores and reiterates even more strongly than ANCSA did the right to public access to these lands. So access has been addressed and it's understandably something people are a little, maybe they're a little skeptical about or still a little afraid, you know, that that might not come to be, but please be assured it is the letter of the law. It's in the legislation. Uh, so that is a really important conversation that we're having with the municipalities of these communities. It's important to listen to concerns people have about what that land use might be. Now, remember that these were the indigenous homelands of the Clinket, Haida, and Sipshian peoples of Southeast Alaska. And we ranged over 23 million acres in the region of Southeast Alaska. People don't always realize that Alaska natives often had a migratory way of living based on the natural resources that sustained them. So fish camps in the summer might be considered temporary or you know, natives didn't actually settle in Petersburg because they weren't here year round. But when you come back to a region every summer because of the wealth of those natural resources and the benefits it provides, that is a permanent you know, use of that natural resource that can be proven dating back thousands of years. Uh, so Petersburg in that sense, of course, was very much a regular part of the life of Alaska natives in this region. We know that there are artifacts in the region. We have the petroglyphs. We have findings by the US Forest Service that support Alaska Native occupancy of these lands going back thousands of years. Yeah, and I feel like the, the I just remember the first time I ever saw the fish traps, I was just blown away, just in awe. And that, that took some time to build. <laughs> and I mean, that's a permanent structure the fish mm -hmm. traps, and they're still there thousands of years later. That's how permanent they were. That's and right. Well, and they were so effective, eventually, you know, there was some regulation around them, but it speaks to the ingenuity and the, the creativity and the resourcefulness of Alaska Native people using the tools at their disposal. The land is such a central part of the identity of Alaska Native peoples. Alaska Native society is often formed, you know, around these communities. Clans are named for the resources that were abundant, the animals that guided 
our communities. Houses are named for animals. We so strongly believe in the connection and the spirit of everything around us that even passing through these lands on a regular basis every summer, that creates a connection that is so deep into the heritage of the peoples who were on these lands so many years ago and who are still here. Yeah. Modern Alaska Natives living and working in our communities, members of tribes, shareholders of corporations, your neighbors, your friends. We live and we work together and we want to find solutions that work for everybody. Yes. And I, I will add this too. I did, I was looking at the map of um, the lands that were selected around Petersburg. And I know last year I was listening to the city, city uh, the borough assembly meetings and people were concerned about the cabins in the area of Portage Bay. And I know you guys went back to the table and took out those cabins out of your- we did. Out of the two land claims. And so- well, I think that's a- that's a great example, Kari, of how collaborative and cooperative we want to be um, as Alaska Native members who were left out of this piece of legislation, but recognize that we live and work in communities where there are a lot of stakeholders. Um, so what we did is we heard that concern in the community and there was no intent on the back end to try to capture, you know, any asset or any resource like that. So yes, we went back to the table and we made sure that those parcels uh, of land were taken out, that the administrative rights of the US Forest Service were preserved for those areas. And we had to look at different parcels. Some people have looked at those maps and thought, well, why are these pieces of land so scattered? Well, it's been 50 years and there are so many land use designations in Alaska for state land and federal land and, and uh, portages and timber and we now have to work with what's still there and so it's sometimes farther away from the community than it would have been had we been able to select 50 years ago but that right is still true to the principle of of why ANCSA was passed that right to those lands and that ownership and the benefits that flow from that is still true now, 50 years later, even though these communities weren't technically included. Thank you. So some of the questions too that came up in conversations about the land going into native ownership is how might that land be used? You know, that's a fair question for people who live in the area, who have roots here, um, generations, you know, of families raised in, in this region. But fundamentally, there's really been no objection to people agreeing to the rights of indigenous peoples to own portions of the land that were their historic homelands. Now it's just a matter of working out the details. So historically, you know, one of the elephants in the room that I think has to be said is there was a lot of large-scale logging in Southeast Alaska. Well, that was 50 years ago. I mean, literally the landscape has dramatically changed. Sea Alaska Corporation, for example, is exiting the timber harvesting industry. 
that infrastructure in Southeast Alaska, you know, it's coming under question as to how sustainable it can be. So we're looking at our natural resources as we always have, which is what are all of the opportunities that these resources might provide? There's so much going on in mariculture, in aquaculture, in oyster farms and kelp farms and seaweed harvest, ways that the sea and its products can be used for the good of our environment. One of the things that native corporations have been looking at is the use of carbon sequestration banks of their land. You get paid for the timber to stand on the land and produce oxygen and be a carbon dioxide bank. So that's something that has been successfully used and that village corporations are now looking at to use their timber in a way that is both profitable, but sustainable and good for the environment. Remember that the leadership of these Alaska Native corporations is now 50 years out, and there are so many lessons that we've learned along the way. So something that's also really important for people to know is that in order to have a carbon bank on Native lands, those lands have to be certified to be logged. Otherwise, there's no gain from the carbon. If, they, if you can't go in and harvest the logs in the first place, you, there's no sense in the value of a trade for a, a carbon bank. So they technically have to be certified. And I think people maybe get a little nervous about that, but I'm just here to say that's a technicality of the law that has to be observed in order to even consider lands for carbon sequestration. Okay, that's good to know because that's in, yeah, that's an important detail. Yeah. Right. Ultimately, if these five communities do receive ownership of that land, that means that it's the urban corporation that has the right to determine how those natural resources will be used. It becomes their right by law, just as any private landowner has the right to use their land. Provided, you know, it follows the law around easements and access and, and everything else. We all have to be good neighbors. So ultimately, it's their choice. But there are so many things that are different from what they were 50 years ago. Understanding our responsibility to our environment, that's always been central to the values of Alaska Natives, to use resources sustainably so that they don't run out. It's the prerogative of the urban corporations and their elected leadership to decide on the use of those lands. But we've learned powerful lessons over the past 50 years. And there are so many new emerging economic development ideas that we get excited about that we can work with the community on. There's so much benefit to be gained. Yes, and I was just, I was just watching a something put out by this Ted Stevens Foundation on ANCSA. And um, it was talking about how Ted Stevens was such a proponent of, the, of ANCSA. And um, his, his angle of it was, I found myself agreeing with, <laughs> which was... Um, Federal land, and my dad has always said this, 
federal land is owned by everybody in the United States, the people back in New York and Maine and all over. And that's who owns that land and that's who gets the say in that land is the federal government. And Ted Stevens had said, don't you want this land owned by your local community members? And that it would be a, it would be in private hands, but it would also be your neighbors. It wouldn't be the federal government. That was his, his take on the whole Alaska Native Claims Act is putting, putting that land in the hands of Alaskans. Right. Right. And, you know, one thing we've always known as Alaska Natives and, and something, of course, that, that communities know themselves, they're usually the ones who have the best answers to any challenges within their community. They know best how to solve problems, what resources are available, who you can work with, who you need to turn to. So local ownership in many ways I think is better than federal ownership. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, thank you for having this conversation with me. <laughs> I so appreciate it. I'm very happy to help people understand what some of these just basic provisions are. You know, how did this happen? Where are we now? What might this look like in the future? And if any part of this conversation helps people understand that, I'm so glad to have, to have contributed to that. Well, can I ask you one last personal question? Of course. I just want to hear from you. Like, you're always a delightful person. I love talking to you about these issues because um, not just about ANCSA, but um, you have such a wealth of knowledge. I just enjoy talking to you because I, I learn so much through every conversation with you. And sometimes I really feel like, um, I don't know what's the word for it. It's humbling. And in a good way, at first it was kind of a little bit hard because I'm like, Oh, I didn't realize how off I was. Um, but the more and more I talk to you, the more I understand ways in which my perception is coming from a very Western colonial assumption. And through talking to you, I've really learned to, oh, there it is. <laughs> oh, there it is. My assumptions that are being challenged and and I'm able to see when they're wrong. And the first few times that that happened, it was, it was quite a lot. It took me a while to kind of process that in my own brain and, and, and come out with it. And I know um, we have another great project coming and um, you're working with us on it. And, uh, and I thought, I don't know that I can do a whole year of being met with my assumptions <laughs> daily. But then, but then I realized it got after the more I talked to you, the easier it got because we have these honest conversations about what, what this is or how it's offensive or not offensive. And um, you have been such a leader in the native community 
and with the landless natives and the rights for native rights. And I know you're with your grandmother, you had that legacy, but I also just wanted to hear from you. What inspires you to keep doing this work? Because you're always so positive about it, but you're, you always just cut straight to the chase and, but it's always very kind and straightforward. And yeah. So what inspires you to do that? Oh my gosh. That's almost making me tear up. Um, first, please let me say how kind and generous it is of you to say what you just said. Sometimes it's, it's hard to recognize the patterns that we develop or thoughts that we have that are just shaped by our own experience, shaped by whatever we've absorbed in our lives. And we all come up against those times when we're like, oh, I was totally wrong about that. Or I didn't understand. I didn't have the right information. And these conversations is part of how we all get there. When you can be curious and feel like you can talk about something that won't create any hostility, where you try not to have misunderstandings, where it's kind of a safe place to feel stupid, but know that that will be met with gentleness and understanding and a genuine desire to, to just have people understand things better. It's true on both sides of any conversation you have. So that was, thank you so much. I'm, I'm taking that so strongly into my heart right now. I really appreciate what you shared. As Alaska Native people, we're, we're taught the importance of carrying yourself with humility, that it's not about um, being a leader. We would certainly never call ourselves that. And that value of just knowing that my identity, and, and I can, you know, I'll speak to this personally, my identity is part of a collective identity. I don't move through this world as a single person who is pursuing their own success, their own wealth, their own whatever, this or that. I know that whatever I can contribute to a communal effort helps everybody. And that is the underlying value that Alaska Native culture and societies was built on. And the beautiful thing about that is you're never alone. You are never by yourself when you are part of that identity of being a member of a house and a clan and a tribe and a society that is so connected with stories and songs and dance and legends and mythology that bind you together as, as a strong people and as a heritage. It's, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. And it's true of, of every heritage. Petersburg has such a strong Norwegian heritage that binds people together through that shared experience. And one of the most beautiful things that I learned from both of my grandmothers, my Norwegian grandmother was Elma Wallen, and she was one of the original founders of Petersburg's Little Norway Festival. My Clinket grandmother was Amy Hollingstead, who was renowned just 
such a fierce warrior for native rights and equal access and opportunity. And what they both embodied and what they both knew decades ago is that culture can be a binding force for community. Culture can drive commerce. Culture is what connects us. And they both did that in their own ways. And so I think having some of that blood flowing through me is part of what just sort of naturally propels me to want to be part of solution finding and helping people succeed. And I'm really fortunate that as a consultant, I love what I do. I help weave Alaska Native values into enterprise to ground your company, help find efficiencies. Um, management, you know, organizational design is sort of my, my specialty, but it it comes from a place of wanting us all to be connected in a meaningful way. You're very good at it. <laughs> so my two grandmothers flow strongly through me. Um, the, the influence of my parents, of, of my whole extended family. It's important to do the work to help everybody succeed. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And you are very good at that. And I hope that you succeed in this. I wish you luck in the land list, the most recent round. Good as cheese. We will keep working for a solution. We'll keep working collectively, these five communities together to, to overcome what now amounts to a real social and economic injustice because we've been left out for 50 years and we want to be in there trying to create benefits and contribute to our communities. A big thank you to Nicole Hollingstead for taking the time to talk to us today about the issue of landless natives in Petersburg. Thank you for listening. This has been Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. Today's conversation will be archived as a podcast on the library's website at www.psglib.org.